I'm a cat. I'm a sexy cat. Okay, welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is The Will Be Movies, Volume 1, The 2000s. This is a podcast where myself, Matt Waters, and my co-host, Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? I'm good. Good. Soldiering through illness and broken teeth. and Broken, broken teeth and, and heat. It is very warm and the world is descending into hell because on the day we record this, the internet is exploding about there being black mermaids. This is a podcast. There's not enough melanin under no. the water. No, the science of mermaids. <laughs> the sun doesn't reach them to, to tan their skin enough yeah, to be black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the <laughs> other hand, completely fine with Melissa McCarthy, who is a perfect casting for Ursula, despite the fact the role being based on drag queens. But no, this is... <laughs> it should be Titus. Anyway, this is There Will Be Movies. We took 25 of our favourite movies to come out from the years 2000 to 2009. How do we get to that list? Go listen to episode zero. There's too many rules to run down every time. But this is episode seven, and it's adaptation and i think this is the first selection that got on the list purely from you second because memento was our first oh memento was you we did we started with a ben pick and now the second ben pick is equally confusing in its structure yeah and we had a lot of matt (laughs) in a row we're gonna hit a big stretch of ben here not that i am against this i confession time had not seen it but based on like what i like and what i know knew of it and everything i was pretty sure when we made the list i was gonna like it so i was fine with it. And I've watched it, and now I'm very okay with it being on <laughs> It's such a profoundly weird movie. Isn't it just? Directed by Spike Jones, who, pretty busy making short films and TV shows and being a producer and, and music videos, because the only other movie of note of his this decade was Where the Wild Things Are, which, good, but not adaptation. I can report back after no, I mean, like, he kind of, he does, being John Malkovich, like, three years before this. Oh, yeah. When we eventually um, get to Volume 3 and do the 90s, <laughs> look out. But then after this, he kind of doesn't do much. Like, the the only other, like, consistent thing that he's involved in is Jackass. Yeah, like, consistently blows my mind every time I forget that bit of trivia that he, like, created and produced and was, like, heavily involved with Jackass. Like, so, important question. What was his best movie of 2002? Is it Jackass the movie or is it Adaptation? It's Adaptation, Benjamin. Written by Charlie Kaufman. Our first of two Charlie Kaufman movies. Yes. Of this miniseries. We will tell you whether or not it's Eternal Sunshine or Synoptiki. Based on the book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, but it's not really. But it is but that's written as, like, based on, so... mm. We'll get into it. Released in February 2003 in the UK, but it snuck in there right at the end of 2002 in the US, December. You already talked about 2002 with Catch Me If You Can last week, so no need to contextualise the year, but if you just want to take us through some of that opening weekend. Yeah, so in the UK, it opened to a a stunning 14th place at the box office. Whoa. um, (coughs) Earning just over a quarter of a million dollars equivalent in the UK. But it's so... Um, commercially friendly. Um, literally 94 screens. Fun fact, number two movie that week was Jackass the Movie. Uh, right, well, there you go. <laughs> number one was The Ring, and Catch Me If You Can's hanging on at number four around there. Wow. So, 114 confusing-ass minutes. Well, not really confusing, just weird-ass minutes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's nothing in this movie that, like, isn't well enough explained. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. like... It, it, like it's a very poor choice of words. It's just, it's like, huh? Tiny budget of $19 million, but it made 32.8, which is surprisingly high, given the subject matter. I was being all like, ha ah, when we were talking about Charlie Kaufman and Susan Allen. It's a semi-true story, because Charlie... Charlie Kaufman was tapped to write an adaptation of The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, and he struggled because there is no drama whatsoever in that book, really. So instead, so he just... I did I did propose that I would read all the books that the, <laughs> that the movies were based on, uh-huh. and then I remembered that this movie is an adapted screenplay and not an original screenplay, mm-hmm. and I was sat there going like, am I going to read The Orchid Thief? I don't know to... why you didn't. <laughs> to fully appreciate Well, I will pause the podcast right now while you go read it. So yeah, he descended into despair and writer's block and instead decided to write about him failing to adapt The Orchid Thief. And he handed in this completed script without telling the producers that this is the direction he had chosen to go in. And he famously stated that he believed he was ending his career the moment he handed that script in. Despite Spike Jones being all 
all about it when he told him about it while they were making being John Malkovich. And did and didn't like the script get like fast tracked the moment after he handed it in. It yeah, was like he had it the did really well. And, then, <laughs> and they were just like, "This is amazing. Yeah. Let's make this movie." Who do you think was more shocked when they saw this? Do you reckon it was the producers, or do you reckon it was Susan Orlean who's being told? Uh, well, she famously like had to be heavily talked into it because she was like, "What are you talking about? This is nonsense. I hate it. Don't do it." And then she's like, yeah, "I really like it. It's my favorite Meryl Streep performance." Like, "Oh, you narcissist playing you? That's your favorite Meryl? Come on." Yeah, I think Meryl she... is really good though. Oh, <laughs> come on. So the fictional Donald Kaufman. Uh, was nominated alongside Charlie Kaufman for both a Golden Globe and an Oscar and the Academy actually informed Charlie Kaufman that if they won they would have to share one statue Donald Kaufman doesn't exist you didn't realise this when you watched the movie I didn't know that and I was half I was just texting you my thoughts and I was like what a weird way to tell your brother you think he's a fucking doofus and then you're like there is no Donald Kaufman I was like crazy crazy stuff I was you know because I like to get all the directed by written by all written down and everything and I was like yeah just Charlie Kaufman and then I start watching the movie and it says written by Charlie and Donald Kaufman I was like oh that's weird I didn't say that and then uh, yeah sure enough he doesn't exist and he just yeah, made I, up a brother I, I to make the of, film more fun kind of wish I'd say to the end like cause even though it's not really a spoiler that he doesn't exist mm. I still think it would have been funny for me to tell you that uh, someone who dies in the course of this movie yeah. didn't exist yeah if we could have canned the moment that I discovered this was not real and recorded it for you and everything it would have been great but unfortunately I already know sorry they wanted Tom Hanks to play Charlie Kaufman. They ended up on Nicolas Cage, who said he had to ignore every single one of his acting instincts. <laughs> and look what happened! One of his best performances. Also, I believe Nicky Cage is 2-0 when playing a screenwriter in terms of Oscar nominations, so get him to play one, he's gonna get an Oscar nod, apparently. Nicolas Cage is one of those guys who, if you pair him with a good director, yeah. then he's probably gonna put in a good performance. Because like you look at his like the best movies that he's done are all with like really good directors. It's like Matthew Vaughan and Kickass, and this movie with Spike Jones and um. Go on, keep going. Uh, Go on. <coughs> oh, he's dying. I'm dying. As was Nicolas Cage in. in... Yeah. Uh, raising, raising Arizona with the Coen brothers he's obviously really good in like Mandy he's fantastic in like he he does these good movies every so often and then like he does utter weird performances and other things which I don't think he's ever bad but I think he's so heightened that it sometimes seems odd with the movie I think he's a genius I mean he keeps getting hired for some reason and it's not because of his hair I don't know if I was in 70 films over 30 years and I spent each one talking at random volumes I might accidentally win an Oscar he's, he's like Bruce Willis like Bruce Willis is someone who I have heard will like show up on set, ask directors really complex questions about directing, and if they can't answer him, he just signs off the performance and just like I'm done. This movie is not worth me paying attention. Excellent. Which is why the only movies that Bruce Willis is good in nowadays are with competent directors that you know. Still does the movie, just as a silent protest, is deliberately bad in it. I've also heard that he charges a ludicrous amount of money per day. So all yeah. the movies that he's in nowadays are like. Also, he... isn't he a Republican? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah, but he famously will, like, work five days on a movie and then just bugger off after being paid his exorbitant fee. Excellent. Do you know who did not get paid an exorbitant fee? Meryl Streep for this movie. She took a pay cut because she adored the script and it's got a small budget and she's an adult. Now, Joaquin Phoenix was deep into negotiations to play John LaRoche, but dropped out late, feeling he was wrong for it. In steps Chris Cooper with the role of his career. What a weird fucking movie. The beginning alone is very strange with <laughs> opening with just black screen and credits and Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman in a written in a movie written by Charlie Kaufman just dressing himself down completely saying you're a fat piece of shit and, and this that and the other and it was like ah this is certainly a choice and then going straight into like well I have to assume they've restaged some behind the scenes stuff of being John Malkovich rather yeah, than yeah like, like a, a portion of this budget was devoted to remaking sets from being John Malkovich getting John Malkovich it like maybe the John Malkovich one is like the only one that isn't a recreation for the movie because mm. it's kind of shot a little differently like it looks like it's behind the scenes footage almost but I don't know it's hard to say and they're like name crediting like you know apologies but you know behind the scenes people you know like uh, assistant directors and, and whoever and then it's like oh and here's Nicolas Cage it's like huh wearing a fat suit and a, a bald wig and just sweating for profusely throughout and just 
It's a very weird way to... I mean, being John Malkovich is obviously a very fucking weird movie. And then, like, oh, here's this movie that probably... You know, not a lot of people saw Adaptation. And, like, how many of them also saw Being John Malkovich? Like, a weird beat to play. And then, like, going into a little history of the world montage, which will much later get a callback. It's just a very strange way to open your movie, in my opinion. I'm going to ask a question now, because I feel like this is a good... When did it click for you that this movie was the story of... Of making this movie. I feel I knew that already. I don't oh, know. As in, like, you knew it from, uh, from listening to it a lot. I think I remember watching it and kind of having the realization when he gets to the point where I'm going to put myself into the movie that then you realize, oh no, this is the story of him. Like, I mean, yeah, you definitely hit the point where he's literally writing the movie we're watching. I, I didn't see that coming, but I knew it was like semi autobiographical and like meta and stuff like that. But yeah, there's definitely a point where he starts yammering into the dictaphone. It's like, oh, he's literally describing the scene that from the beginning of the movie and it's a wild ride we're gonna kind of cover this like we did memento in that rather than act one act two act three i think we're gonna cover all of the charlie kaufman side and then we're gonna cover all of the susan orlean side and then when they meet so charlie kaufman's struggling to write this movie and he, he takes a lunch with with tilda swinton who just magical creature who will pop up anywhere and be great for two minutes if needed this is one of those movies where like everyone in it is like relative levels of fameless <laughs> a star-studded cast. This conversation, like, it takes on so much, like, extra weight when you think back on it, l- when you're watching later points of the movie, because it's kind of it's kind of nothing. It's just him, like, saying, you know, I don't want this to be Hollywooded up, and I don't want there to be, like, a heist or, or characters learning things, you know. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. But then when you get to the points later in the movie where, like, she made the suggestion, we'd like it if they fell in love, and then you see them gradually falling in love, and it's like, oh... Okay, it, and it undoubtedly becomes Hollywooded up towards the end and stuff. It's just, but in such a profoundly weird way. Like it's yeah. a Hollywood movie, but through the lens of Charlie, Kauf- Charlie Kaufman, like doing this kind of stuff. Like yeah. he lists the three things that he doesn't want to do in this movie, and then and they kind of do all of them by the end of the movie, yeah. which is like one of those wonderful little bits of foreshadowing that this movie manages to do. Which yeah. is like he wants to write the movie that is the opposite of this and yeah. ends up writing exactly that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly he, he betrays that. all of his principles throughout this movie yeah but like when i watched that scene straight i was just like okay and then thinking about the movie afterwards i was like oh god i kind of want to re-watch the beginning now through the lens of having seen the whole thing it's very cool surprise surprise he's playing fucking twins <laughs> as as we mentioned up front this fictional donald kaufman and nicholas cage just um, kaufman walks through the fucking door and there's another nicholas cage just sitting on the floor it's like oh this is a thing that's happening and wonderfully one of them's a fucking idiot it's a never it's a limit well of comedic gold of just Donald Kaufman being an earnest idiot and Charlie just being a depressed guy telling him, no, you're you're just wrong. And just being like, oh, I thought I'd be a screenwriter, just like you. It's like, oh. well, the, thing, the thing that I like about him is that even though Charlie's obviously got a lot of disdain for his brother, <laughs> yeah. Donald has his shit in order mm-hmm. and is, like, good at what he does. Yeah. Charlie has no respect for a lot of what he does, but the movie isn't going, like, I don't even think it's saying, like, he's fall, he's failing upwards. I think it's saying, like, he's good at the thing that he's supposed to be good at. It's just... Yeah, he says he's, like, a genius with structure and stuff, and it's like, well, he can't fake that like it's just it's not the kind of stuff that his brother's doing is i think the important thing well which you is say like, he's got his shit together he's like crashing at charlie's house and stuff but yeah otherwise he's crashing at charlie's, charlie's house and also he can't like sit on sofas and stuff like that so he's constantly on the floor lying because yeah. his back's like fucked up but then he ends up picking up maggie gyllenhaal and like we're not even going to talk about her because she barely has any fucking scenes it's just oh look how many people are in this movie so cage was credited separately for these two roles because it's in order of appearance. So, like, right at the top, Charlie Kaufman, several names down, Donald It's great. It's wonderful. Nicolas Cage's real-life brother stood in for whichever sibling Cage wasn't playing at a given moment. You know, the whole Sean Gunn and Guardians-type deal. I think that's yeah. fun. I was I was going to say, like, what do we think the budget in this movie is spent more on? Is it spent on the kind of, like, split-camera stuff they would have to do with yeah. Nick Cage? Or is it basically anything they film in Florida? I'd say 50% went to that, and <laughs> 50% went to that, and then they all just had a whip round for Meryl Streep. It's actually pretty good green screen for the time. I know, like, 
like green screen's not like the most crazy out there thing in the world but like if you go back to like the 90s and you watch something like friends where lisa kudrow is playing twins it looks awful and then it do, um, but that, but but my opposing there would be parent trap looks really good mm. and true i guess movies that's, have that's more money four years before this then they do have disney money on that's parent fair trap. that's fair and i also like that you know much later on charlie will tell him that split personalities are overdone and like i know it's not quite the same although i think there is a sect of fans who speculate that Donald doesn't exist, and, like, maybe even Susan, or the version of Susan he meets isn't real, and, like, he never met her or whatever, you know, all that. But, I don't know, it just, when he said that, it struck me as, like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. There's this ongoing, sort of, very tiny subplot with this this woman, Amelia, who he, like, spends some time with, and he goes on a date with her, and she is giving him the, like, you can kiss me signals, and he just fucks it, and it's strange. It's not that I want it gone, it's just, it's a weird, when you consider what happens throughout the rest of the movie it's kind of like huh but i guess it makes it it makes his life feel a bit more mundane i guess and and it's part of that it's it's to make him feel less attached like it obviously illustrates that he just has no luck with women and is kind of i appreciate that the movie kind of goes out of its way to say like charlie kaufman doesn't treat women particularly well no he doesn't you're asked to like charlie and not like donald but it's like ah, donald's probably nicer so yeah like like cause the thing is like i mean cause charlie's got three scenes of the movie where he starts jerking off to a woman a lot of wanking a lot of wanking in this movie. A lot of, a lot of wanking. A lot of sweaty, um, yeah. sweaty, overweight wanking. I enjoy the payoff at the end because, like, with Amelia, it does kind of come into that kind of like Hollywood romantic ending that kind of comes out of nowhere, which I feel is another meta commentary on mm. these kind of things. But I think it does help reinforce in the early moments, like, this is a man adrift and is prioritizing work over outside relationships to the detriment of actually maybe being able to write humans. Yeah, and he's also maybe like fake nice or like. She's also like the only person that, like, like in the first like 10 actors on the call sheet who are like is not a name nowadays yeah i know i was like who are you why are you not famous she's in the nick right yeah the nick's good yeah there you go speaking of his masturbatory fantasies judy greer aka kitty from arrested <laughs> development aka scott's ex-wife and ant-man serves him at a diner and then he masturbates about taking her to an orchid show for research <laughs> and she's topless for reasons that I'm not entirely okay with, but hey. Because it's literally as a wank fantasy. Like, I, yeah, it makes I think, sense. I think, I think it, is, it, it makes sense. I think, like, yes, they could have not had to be topless, but I do think it adds to that fact that, like, it's at that moment where you realise, oh, it's a dream because exactly, there's no yeah. way, there's this no way that any too person... well, yeah. <laughs> and I love that he's interrupted by Donnie walking in with his terrible, terrible film pitch called The Three. Apparently there are two movies that are vaguely similar to this. And while I was watching it, I was like, Ben, is this going to be a real movie that came out that like Charlie Kaufman thinks is bad and he's just going to attribute it to this person? But no, not a real one, but there are two that are similar to what, it. What are the two? One of them is obviously Identity. One one's called the three but like one of the e's is a three god i think one is like the plot is similar and one is like it's got the same ending that he proposes where it's like <laughs> the cop and the witness and the <laughs> and he's like how can they be in the same place like how does your movie work it's both a commentary on fight club sure in some subtle way but obviously fight club kind of thinks through its shit beforehand but it's like i am surprised that no one kind of comes to and goes like well i guess like at the time that the movie set like fight club wouldn't exist because Fight Club's 99 isn't it oh okay yeah yeah sure when it's set yeah when was the book the book was 96 <laughs> okay maybe he's heard through his agents or whatever oh, this book is is making the rounds as a potential I don't know we're not gonna get into the no but I just I just quite enjoyed that like it feels like when I when I hear that it feels like a riff on mm-hmm. Fight Club in some ways but then like, four months after adaptation comes out of the cinemas Identity comes out which is literally like <laughs> excellent <laughs> like all these split personalities living in a motel or whatever it is and yeah. it's also, also the plot of like an Ag- Agatha Christie murder mystery and it's like you know 15 years too early to be riffing on Split anyway and then just to like really highlight this was definitely just a masturbatory fantasy he tries to ask her out in real life and it goes terribly and she she doesn't even like say no she just is like I'm gonna and just walks off and tells like her manager or another waitress or something and it's very yeah. like this I'm is how this would this go man. in real life like, I'm not gonna serve this man anymore please can someone take this table from me yeah just like 
don't ask out people who are in the oh, what what do they call that industry in America? Hospitality. Oh, okay, service. service industry. Don't ask out people who are like being nice while performing their job. Like, don't. Do I, that I, like, we, we literally have experience of this in that, like, when we worked in retail, mm-hmm. there were customers who would Just like hitting on us all the time. Not oh. on us, but on like female <laughs> members of staff, yes. like to the point where it was just like, this is. Oh yeah, I've I've banned someone from a shop before for being <laughs> creepy to female members of staff. I swear the waitress that she goes and tells to is Katie Seagal, but it probably isn't. No, um, she would she would have been too big at this point, post marriage children. I always and... forget she's actually was actually like a big star. To me, she's always just Leela. After much many many struggles, he thinks he's cracked it. And he goes to Big Ron Livingston. He confesses he's struggling. He has no idea how to do it because there's no narrative and all this. So Ron Livingston is playing Charlie Kaufman's real-life agent. I don't think it's a flattering portrayal, personally. (laughs) But apparently, when he wrote Being John Malkovich, he bet him he could sell that script, and he did. So shout-outs, I guess, for getting that sold. I have to imagine that he's got a good sense of humour, because, like, in this first scene, like, half of his lines are about the ways in which he fucked female people in the office. Yes. Big Ron! Plus half a star to any film he's in. It's it's the rules. (laughs) He's not quite as good as Sam Rockwell. He doesn't get the full star. (laughs) Yeah, half a star. Half a star. Ron Livingston has half a star to everything he's in. And like I said, I really like when he's yammering into the dictaphone about, oh, the history of the world, and we'll see, like, uh, you know, like, uh, the single-celled ones, and, and it's and it's like, oh, okay, I see what's yeah. happening here. I'm I'm glad that the movie the movie could do the obvious thing and then flash back to that scene. Instead, it like relies on your intelligence to kind of. I mean, it was only half an hour ago. <laughs> no, sure, but it's the kind of thing that like a lesser script would flash back to that at this point to sure. remind you that they've done it. But also, that is such a that stuck with me for a good fifteen minutes. I was just like, why did they do that? What a weird <laughs> way to open this movie? And then it's like, oh, so they could do this joke. Half an hour later. Excellent stuff. So he has another masturbatory fantasy, this time about Susan Orlean. Based on her inside cover book photo. Yes, yes, Charlie Kaufman. Bold of you to completely assassinate yourself in front of the world. So, yeah, he decides to write her into the book, and that is how he starts to break the story, essentially. But then he declines to meet her. No, 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 he goes to he goes to pick up takeout, and then just runs into her at the oh, restaurant. Oh, I thought he was... Oh, okay. I wasn't paying attention. So, yeah, he sees Tilda Swinton's character in the restaurant, and she's like, oh, Susan's just in the bathroom, do you want to meet her? And it's like, he plays it off as, like, I don't want to meet someone I'm writing about, because it'll inform the performance. But I 100% read it as... I'm embarrassed because I just wanked about her. (laughs) I know not not literally, it's not like he cleaned up, hopefully, and then came straight out. I I read it kind of that way that he was now a little bit embarrassed to meet her knowing that he did that. Yeah, it probably probably is part of that, but I also would imagine it's kind of like, I can't tell this person to her face that, like, I can't adapt her book. (laughs) I'm struggling, your book is weird. Why did he take the job? Because he wanted to write something that no one had written before. I mean, sure. It's that kind of, like, ego thing, which is why he gets completely ripped to shreds when he goes to the um well yeah i mean yeah he starts literally writing this film after this and then he again chickens out on meeting susan and what he does then is he goes to this fucking script writing seminar by robert mckee who was a real script writing script doctor teacher all that stuff who donnie came home raving about and being like i want to be a script writer this guy thinks i can be great and charlie's basically just like oh he's a hack everything he knows is bullshit and charlie hits rock bottom after chickening out on going to see Susan, and by the by, them in the lift, and him just being like, ah, and not actually saying anything. Perfect. So yeah, he goes to this seminar, and who was playing Robert McKee, but Brian Cox, at the suggestion of Robert McKee. They look identical. I'm looking at Robert McKee's <laughs> Wikipedia page right now, and it's like, is that Brian Cox? <laughs> Shall we just run down? So here's a list of people who have been in Brian Cox, uh, not Brian Cox, who have been in Robert McKee's real-life story seminar. Sure. Akiva Goldsman, mm-hmm. Peter Jackson, mm-hmm. Andrew Stanton, okay. and Paul Haggis have all had this thing. And all four of those people have won an Oscar for screenwriting. They sure have. <laughs> Fuck with me. And I really like that Charlie is speaking in narration over almost every single word that is being spoken and just sitting there tearing it apart, tearing himself apart for going to it, saying he's a failure. And then the second he stands up to leave is when Brian Cox yells, and God help you if you use voiceover in your work. And the film has used voiceover from the very start. And it's like, yeah, you're doing this now as well. Robert McKee claims he is not actually against voiceover. He simply is was saying that 
it should add something and that you shouldn't be narrating what you can already see. But Charlie got in that little drive at him there of saying he hates voiceover. I think I think it is a very common oh, yeah. screenwriting thing. Which I, is don't, like, don't, I don't think don't, he's wrong at all. Yeah, don't open your movie with a voiceover because it is such like a writer's crutch. Mm-hmm. But then there's always exceptions that kind of prove the rule. Like this oh, movie yeah. opens with like, there is no plot description going on in the opening narration to this movie. Yeah. It's not like we open in the summer of 1977. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's it's not like it's gonna like here's five minutes of info dump information that you need to yeah. like set the plot up. It's no, just it's just like mundane criticism every day. Nothing important is said in that first two minutes. It's great. Which is one of the things that I find really interesting about this is because obviously I think the movie kind of does. I don't think it comes down on the side of there are rules to making a good screenplay, but I definitely think it's. I think there are things that you would, in most cases, be wise to do. Or not yeah. to. I think, I think it, kind of, it kind of comes down in that kind of angle where, like, obviously this movie is more than happy to throw out the rules of, like, screenwriting, but also it's willing to admit that, like, no, these are core tenets of a story that, at a base level, these will make an interesting story mm. for you. And, I'm... like, it, it's not being, like, all snooty and stuff like that and saying, like, doing this is a way to write a bad, bad screenplay. It's, like, good screenplays can come from anywhere. You yeah. can do you can do this method and come up with a good screenplay, or you can do Charlie Kaufman's method and come up with a good screenplay. I'm going to use a basketball metaphor here and say it's a bad shot until you make it. It's essentially, you know, like, don't do this unless you're really good at not doing it. You know, like, Charlie Kaufman can make this shit work, but that doesn't mean everyone can. And there's a reason he's advising you don't do it. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of script. It's not like you can... (laughs) Like, it's not like everyone can come out and be like, I'm going to take a book and then not adapt the book. (laughs) Yeah, here's how I failed at my job. And then I won about failing about my job. McKee, Brian Cox, also says you cannot have a protagonist without desire, and Charlie has kind of been presented as a sort of He's not listless, but he's a little bit low energy, a little bit depressed. You can tell he is passionate about wanting to make this a good thing. I feel that's another shot kind of at himself here with this writing. He kind of takes on more desire from this point onwards as well, which I think is quite interesting, but Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Well, it's because he gets completely torn down. He's like, he I, want to, I want to write a movie that has no plot or no conflict or anything like that. And yeah. Robert McKee's just like, why? You idiot. <laughs> that's not a film. That's a short film. That's a that's an avant-garde mood piece. Robert McKee would know what Charlie Kaufman looked like, surely, in real life. <laughs> At this point, like, uh, if you're teaching screenwriting, you surely know what the guy that wrote John Malkovich, being John Malkovich. Looks I mean, but again, like, like it, it'd be like this. I did. If he went to go visit him, this would have been before Charlie Kaufman had had like success. Like being John Malkovich is still not out at this point. Sure, sure. Really, sure. like, yeah, like, but yes. mate, uh, yeah. Fair enough. And also, like, you know, how many screenwriters would the average person recognize? Let alone someone who's in that industry, like. You know, not many, so fair enough. But yeah, this little conversation they have in the bar afterwards and, like, getting advice from him and giving him shit about, you know, oh, the real world's boring. Like, the real world's fucking amazing. People die and and live all the time. Get out there and live, you fuckbag. It's it's wonderful. It's just a little moment where it's just like, why are you talking about life being boring? Your life is boring. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, real life is really exciting. Look at the news. Like, shit happens. It does. Just make it sexier. So that kind of... That's... Charlie's side up until these two characters cross over. Meanwhile, playing out simultaneously, so like we just continually cut back and forth between Charlie in the present and Susan between six six months ago and like three years ago, writing this book, The Orchid Thief, and she at first is also somewhat struggling. Like we see her plotting out, but like she seems to be struggling more competently. Like she's like working through it, and like you know she she talks through this, and we see it as a montage, like the history of orchid thieves and these famous people who have died trying to get orchids, and it's good stuff. And like it's it's very similar to the the sequence in Ocean's Eleven where they run through like the yeah. three most successful bank heists in. Yeah, I love that show. <laughs> Not bank heists, um, casino. casino robberies. Yeah, I love that show. I'm a sucker for a quick montage with a theme. So. 
we also, before we even meet her, we meet John LaRoche, Chris Cooper, who is trying to extract rare flowers down in a swamp in Florida, and then he bamboozles the cop who's like, hey, you can't remove plants or, or wildlife from, from the state of Florida. And then uh, he also does this in court. Like, is he defending himself in court? Like, I think so. Yeah, and he's exploiting like weird legal loopholes in, involving Native Americans, because like, he uses Native Americans to help him with his stuff because of America's fucked up <laughs> there's, there's a law that says that they can take plants off of, uh, off of land as their land because <laughs> they're owed it or whatever and he, I, as long as I don't touch them they can't arrest me and, <laughs> and you also get this this idea that like you see it later they kind of just sit around getting high and just every now and then do what he tells them but like they don't give a shit <laughs> I don't think but he says this wonderful thing of like you know I'm the smartest person I know and like you know he Susan immediately describes him I think does she describe him before we even see him but she's like say immediately saying how he has like no teeth and and this that and the other and it's like you know he is clearly a slightly off-putting man but there is something like undeniably charming about him chris cooper wins the oscar for this yes. and it's like well deserved like oh, he's yeah. up against some really good people like he's up against chris walken for catching if you can and stuff like that but mm. this but, is such a like a magnetic performance yeah for just this like very offbeat man and he probably should feel out of his depth in comparison to Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep. Oh, yeah. Really. But the fact that he's so memorable when you come away from this movie, I think it's a testament to just how good Chris Cooper is in this role. And it's like a face that you have seen dozens of times over the years, but like you watch this and you're like, why weren't you like huge? Why weren't people like tripping over themselves to throw work at you? Big characters. like Yeah, because he, he still does like Oscar movies where he's got roles in like all these different things. Mm. But yeah, most famously he's... as Norman Osborn in The Amazing Spider-Man uh, Two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, will, just... I, I also enjoyed Jim Beaver's brief cameo as Ranger Tony. <laughs> yeah, just this opening bit. It's like, okay, I get it. And so she starts following him around and writing about him. And and at first she's writing an article for the New Yorker. She's not even writing a book. And while she's researching him, it's like you know she writes down delusions of grandeur while he's like talking about how important his work is and stuff. And like weird smell coming from the car <laughs> yeah and it's like you know she starts off clearly like not completely looking down on him but you know she's a she writes for the new yorker she's a sophisticated lady and like he's ostensibly a toothless hick who is like bullshitting his way through life a little bit but then i feel like it's i feel like that's quite a common trick that the new yorker will do though which mm. is like they will present someone with all their bad points and then over the course of like a but, long think piece but here's why you shouldn't make... judge them by that <laughs> no sure but i do think it's that thing where like in in this kind of piece that you like put forward like the the base level things and all the ways that you think it's going to be yeah. <coughs> awful and terrible and not enjoyable for her and then you flip it by the end and you make it be like yeah. this is a fascinating man who's full of charisma and does know his shit i mean she starts grilling him about like all these passions that he's had and then just dropped one day and like he's name dropping like the full names of all these different breeds of fish and like he knows his shit he's just a really simple man and simple doesn't have to be a pejorative like he he just has a way of seeing the world that she initially is like you're wrong and then she's like okay no, fair enough. You're smarter than you look and stuff like that. Yeah, like he he loves things very intently for a very short period of time. Yeah, and then it's like I've fulfilled my life's goal to like enjoy this thing. I will now move on to yeah. something else. It's like you and I right now are into Evangelion, and then next week it's just all going to be My Hero Academia. <laughs> it's not going to be. Just going to say that now. <laughs> so Laroche is talking about. You're right. Do you need a minute to recover from my joke? I'm good. I've recovered. Okay, so he, when he's talking about the plants, he mentions adaptation, and I did that like, ah, it's like double net meta, and oh, they're adapting, and and this is an adaptation, and oh, great stuff. And then he, you know, he tells the heartbreaking story of of the car crash, of like how he lost his his teeth, and like, is it is it just his mother that dies, or like, no, no, he loses his wife, right? He loses both his grandparents. Is it grandparents or aunt uncle? Aunt uncle. He loses both his aunt and uncle in the car oh, crash. Okay. And then his wife uh, is in the coma. 
Okay. But yeah, it's... And it's like, you can, like, see her entire view of him changing. Like, you can see it on her face. Hey, did you know Meryl Streep is a good actress? Meryl Streep is a really good actress. I really... There's... The thing I really like about this is, like, with very little backstory, you completely understand why someone who was in a life-threatening car crash after being married to this man would come out of it and go, like, I don't know if I can stay married to you anymore. But you can also tell immediately why Meryl Streep would fall in love with this man after he tells her that story. It's this wonderful, like bit of screenplay writing and acting and just the way the whole thing is shot and like put together that like all three of those kind of motivations make sense in the moment where it all comes together like you come away from that scene being like all of that made sense even if so much of it is like emotional shorthand yeah definitely so you know she finishes her article for the new yorker and then she she takes a meeting with tilda swinton she discusses how they want to option it to be a film and susan like laughs at this idea which you know is great and meta and funny because 45 minutes ago we were like listening to charlie kaufman like talk about what he wants the film to be and all thinking you're fucking insane that's not a movie that you're describing (laughs) and then we get that happen here and like it's at this point also that the seeds have been sown i mean you know there's kind of if you know how movies work you can kind of foresee that susan will fall for him but like at this point it's like they're actually fully leaning into it and like the last time what other last time you know we we saw tilda swinton earlier in the film saying oh we'd like these two to get together and like it's kind of happening almost at this point and then you see her again and it's it's all good stuff charlie kaufman's a good writer mel streep's a good actress just things that are true she goes down with him to the swamp and like is it meant to be the same swamp as the very beginning is it is it, it's the same kind of like yeah. just the wetlands I, I do want to briefly touch on the, the dinner scene that she has with her husband where, oh, they're, okay, all sure. take, where they're all t- <coughs> taking the piss out of him mm-hmm. she, she's joining in so she's I, she's written the article at this point but the book's not come out I think is yeah. the end of the book is the is the walk through the swamp isn't it so yeah. it's just this moment where they're all taking the piss out of him and she's laughing along with it because she's trying to like stay in touch with these kind of like socialite well to do New Yorker friends that she's got yeah she's a snob basically she's a snob yeah but then she goes into the bathroom and it's like just this look on her face of just like how awful she's treating this person who yeah. is is doing the kind of dual thing of like making her rethink her worldview that like maybe her worldview is this kind of like tiny little bubble of being like a social not 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 a socialite but like an educated writer for the new yorker it's right for the fucking new yorker that's like so <laughs> yeah exactly but then also like that she isn't fulfilled by her marriage and her relationship i mean obviously this scene is like entirely made up by kaufman i mean i assume i've not read the book i would assume that anything that isn't set in florida is made up unless the book really does feature her meditation on whether or not she's still in love with her husband mm. uh, i should have done my research by reading the book yeah well, i don't know why you didn't you're full so you know you mentioned how like the book ends in the walk in the swamp she wants to see this elusive ghost orchid that's like so rare and and they go down there and they wade through and he's getting really angry and defensive because they're like lost well he doesn't want to admit they're lost and like she's like visibly annoyed at him and he's like getting she doesn't say anything really but he just gets increasingly like angry about the situation and then they do eventually find it and it's what the the utterance of it's just a flower you've been like searching for some deeper meaning than the, I don't know it's it's just very poignant and but the, f- the first time we see that scene yes like, when he finally gets it like they don't find that yeah it's, it plays out in two parts and it's like does the book end with them looking for it and not finding it but they really did find it or it's like are they just deliberately splitting this up into like here's an ugly section and then here's the the, the nicer bit that happened after it's it's strange I think yeah. but I also re- I do really enjoy Chris Cooper in all these scenes because like oh, yeah. Meryl Streep's doing so much acting just by being silent but his like petulant like I can <coughs> I can track the sun using a compass and he just sticks a <laughs> stick in the floor tries to build a uh, sundial with a stick on an overcast day hot obviously but like there's not that much he like moves to talk to her and like kicks it over and then realises and then like picks it back up and it's yeah. just like I just need to pay attention to this yeah. for like three minutes and it's just it's awkward and it's great and it's it's poignant and everything and then he then informs her <laughs> one of the big things about ghost orchids you can get very high off them apparently it kind of puts into context like earlier on in the movie there's the, the native american who kind of like comes up to meryl streep and is like touching her face and being like your eyes are full of so much sadness yeah and it's like the whole um, like beautiful mystical native man and it's like no he's just fucking high dude. he's just really fucking high because they stole <laughs> this flower but is it the pollen or is it just i don't know but he posts her some of it 
and she's in a hotel room and she's just listening to dial tones and then calls him up and makes him do a dial tone with her and a fucking course Meryl Streep is really good at acting high along with everything (laughs) else she can do it's when she like tells him no and then like puts her face in the bed and is like kicking her feet and it's like how are you this good at everything fuck you she's just so effortlessly charming I don't get it I don't get it and I think this is at the period of time where people are like Meryl Streep can't do comedy yeah. And it's like, but she's so fucking funny in this. Yeah. And it, she makes everything work. She makes Mama yeah. Mia work. She's Meryl Streep. In the background of all of this mm. is that John LaRoche is like, he's given up on Orchids because he's been arrested and he's kind of doing everything that he's doing with Susan as like a favour to her for this article. Yes. <laughs> but in the background, he's set up like a porn site. Yeah, yeah. A weird beat here because this is where our narratives kind of cross over because Charlie has chickened out on meeting her and he's gone to the screenwriting thing and then he he calls Donnie and he invites him to New York to like help him with the book uh, with the script and then Donnie's like you should go meet her he's like well I can't meet her he's like well I'll go meet her then and he goes and he grills her and he asks these terrible questions that are like like Donnie's not smooth it's great and then they end up spying on her and following her down to Florida and like you know Susan clearly thinks that Donnie's an idiot in this conversation and Donnie like bursts into song while talking to Charlie and it's something that like earlier on when he was talking about his terrible movie he said he wanted to do a musical number and like they were talking about how that's a really bad idea and then like they literally do one here I want to I want to close with like this happy song like happy together like the ironic yeah song in the background exactly yeah and like and then they do it again at the end and then they do it again at the end (laughs) but yeah the way they discover that their suspicions about Susan and there's like multiple stages to it which is like Donnie's question is like if you could have a meal with anyone alive or dead who would you choose just like Einstein and Jesus and he's like she's fucking lying it's such a pre it's such a pre packaged answer and it's like what well he's not wrong and then and then they like watch her make a phone call and tell her husband that she can't go anywhere and then they're just like I'm gonna see whether or not she still knows John LaRoche let's go to his porn site And there she is. I assume that's not Meryl Streep. Uh, No, that is definitely Meryl Streep. Wonderful. Commitment to the role. I mean, Meryl Streep's done that in the past. I know, but it's like, it's such a nothing tiny bit, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's why it's like... Also, what a weird aside that John LaRoche went from orchid stealing, farming, whatever, to like, he runs a porn site. And a bad looking one as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's 1999, Matt. (laughs) Porn sites didn't look good in 1999. Oh, like, you know, you were like... <laughs> seven. Seven. Oh, gross. So yeah, they, they follow her down to Florida, which is creepy, but they are immediately proved right because LaRoche, like, meets her at the airport and they're, like, arm in arm and, and you know, they follow him and the Charlie is caught and Susan, while very high and terrified about the implications that, like, this affair could get out and everything. She attempts to kill him, and uh, he and Donnie flee into the swamp. So Charlie Kaufman getting being caught watching them fuck, and then Chris Cooper running outside naked to catch him and bring him in, and playing this little scene of like, oh hey, nice to meet you, man. He's just naked the whole time. It's like great. Wonderful. And then, you know, the the two brothers having their little heart-to-heart in the swamp, and Donnie talking about this... Or they talk about this girl, Sarah Marshall, and I was like, hang on. Probably a coincidence, but... John ends up shooting Donnie in the arm, and then while they're, like, fleeing in a car, Charlie crashes, and Donnie flies through the windscreen in this surprisingly brutal little scene. Moments after John gets fucking killed by an alligator, what the shit is happening? And, like, I don't like this portion of the film. I get it. I understand. It's all very meta, and, like, he went and did the Hollywood ass weird ending and like gave it an artificially dramatic ending by making it so over the top and everything. I understand it artistically but as a viewer I was really enjoying everything up until they went down to Florida essentially. I think I think it's just because it gets so heightened. It just kind of like, it, it gets funny and like none of this resolution happened elsewise because like I doubt Susan Orlean and John LaRoche are still in contact like John LaRoche is still alive. Donnie, Donnie Kaufman didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And you get like basically everything from the moment where they start like stalking Susan O'Leary. Yeah, where it gets strange. It's not even strange, it just kind of gets like, well, now we're like a heist movie mixed with this other thing, and yeah, it, just it becomes gets so a much different stuff. thing altogether. 
Yeah, and I think, and I do, th- I do, I can understand why you'd be like, well, I was enjoying the kind of like meditation on yeah. the artistic process and stuff like this. And I really and... enjoyed the idea that Nicholas Cage and Mel Street would never get like a real scene together. Like, you know, he has the masturbatory fancy about her earlier, and and they have the quick moment in the lift where she doesn't even know who he is, and they don't even speak. And I was like, God, if they make it to the end of this movie with them never actually, you know, they've got their two big stars, and but I think, never I think have a I... fucking scene. And I was like, oh. Okay. But the thing that I really like is when they get to the scene in in the house in Florida, because like he hasn't really had a scene with her. Like, they, yes, there's the interview scene, but it's so very fleeting, and it's with Donnie. Yeah. But in the house in Florida, where they're just like, oh, this is the person's writing the screenplay about him, and then within three seconds, just like we have to murder him, <laughs> and she plays it so well. Yep. It's that kind of thing where like she's the one who's just like, no, we have to murder this person. Yeah. Me, I mean... this me, this writer of the New Yorker. <laughs> um, I'm perfectly. <laughs> no, no, you toothless porn site man, you must murder him for me. And yeah. She's the one that sits in the car, pointing a gun at him the entire way when they take him to the swamp, yeah. and I, I can understand it does get heightened and it is very different to the rest of the movie, it's but just it also such tonal whiplash you know but it feels i do think it feels earned i do think this feels like like, again i I get it and it it, like it all fits with everything and like charlie like trying to sing to donnie to like make him not die and then donnie dying with a smile on his face like he's seemingly gone and then he opens his eyes again and then the last his last memory on this earth will be that and he dies with the smile on his face it's like that's hauntingly beautiful and then like him having to call their mother and stuff it's like oh shit it's still like a really good well acted movie like and everything it's just what have we been doing for the last 10 minutes I, I do I do wonder and... <laughs> I do wonder if like if it had the budget to kind of like shift into this a bit more noticeably like change the like aspect ratio and like yeah I mean I think I think that would make it too obvious what they're trying to do I think mm. like it works with it being the same but I do think like I do wonder whether or not like if something more noticeable happened other than just it gets noticeably more heightened like if it got visually more heightened it would feel more earned to you maybe it's just I, if their aim was to make me laugh and say what the fuck for 10 minutes mission accomplished and I like, think I think I think that genuinely is what the aim of this last bit is is to go like what the fuck like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, what I really love is the idea of someone seeing or just or just reading the orchid feast and they're going oh they've adapted it into a into a movie <laughs> Yeah. No, they didn't. Yeah, I think, they, I think I think like someone who would read the book would probably go like, no, they do adapt a lot of the book in here. There's a lot of Meryl Streep voiceover reading just straight up passages from the book and the article. Mm-hmm. It's just but where two is thir- the scene? But, but two thirds, but two thirds of the movie is not the book. This is true. And then he obviously is devastated by this for a long time, and several months, I think, pass, and he basically writes all of this into the film, right down to the ending. You know, he even says, like, end on driving away, and it's like, he's thinking that while driving, and like, you know, he f- before that he finally kisses Amelia, who, you know, she confesses she she loves him too, so, but so, then... So do you think that... I think it also plays into, like, the kind of heightened moment of the last act, which oh, is yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. This, this is not kind of weird Hollywoodism. It's it's a more like I don't want to say innocent one, but you know, it it's it's one where you're just like, oh okay. But like it's, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, and then they kiss and she of course she loves him too, but she, they cannot be together and Yeah, so I've got so I've got my, my other take for okay. this. Which I've just come up with just now. Still wanking. <laughs> The first two acts of this movie mm-hmm. are Charlie Kaufman's screenplay. Right. The last act of this movie is Donnie. Is Donnie. <laughs> Which is why it feels Well, I mean, so he invites so... him down to help him, and like he. Well, so yeah, like there's literally a point in the movie where he goes, Donald, come over and help me finish this screenplay. Yeah, and, and he then does. And he does. And the movie has. Changes, yeah. Is, he, changes, is he just ends... saying that like Donnie is the part of his brain that like can write what Hollywood wants, and Charlie is like the neurotic part of him that just has existential dread of. About the very industry that is his lifeblood. Like I think that's exactly what this movie's <laughs> trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 like he's trying to say, like, I could do this movie if I wanted to. I could do the movie that you're all expecting, which is like these two people being in love and high and murdering <laughs> someone who stumbles upon their drug den and stuff like that. Doing dial tones. But, but that's not what I'm interested in, and it's why I mean he he's got Confessions of a Dangerous Mind that comes out after this, but then he's got Eternal Sunshine like two years later which mm. shows that he's definitely not interested in what conventional <laughs> yeah and yeah happy together plays as he's driving away the song that they've been singing to each other and Weezer actually recorded an acoustic version for the movie but then uh, Spike Jones was like nah I'm good I think we'll have the original I think we'll have the turtles thank you 
and you know credits play and then we get a fucking <laughs> fictional quote from the three you read it and it's like this hurts to read it's so bad and then dedicated in memory of donnie which is just oh, thank you thank you for this ongoing <laughs> beat right up to the end i really want to know how they went to the wga and said like can we credit this to someone who doesn't exist because i'm pretty sure the rules for like crediting on movies are pretty strict mm-hmm. you can have your name removed and replaced with alan smithy but what is the process of going to them and saying, I want to credit someone who literally does not exist. Yep, a person that you could never meet. In addition to me. I want my imaginary friend to be co-credited on my screenplay about how I can't write movies. And then I want an Oscar, please. <laughs> and then they give him the Oscar. Yeah, it's wonderful. What a great how, how is fucking this movie? stupid movie that should I... never have gotten made, but I fucking love that it did. Uh, how, how, how is this movie adapted? Like, this is more annoying to me that this is adapted. I understand that the whole sways of this movie are adapted from the Orchid Thief. Yeah, like, the the based on the Orchid Thief feels like such a, like, courtesy to Susan Orlean for, like, borrowing her book to use within his larger, completely made-up story. This is an original fucking screenplay! Yeah. But the end result was magnificent. And, it like, didn't win adapted screenplay. <laughs> Brilliant. I looked at the BAFTAs earlier. It didn't win adapted screenplay. Oh yeah, and Mel Streep accepted on his behalf and like misread his message and said he wanted to spank Spike Jones or something. <laughs> yeah, it was a whole fucking thing. Yeah. Great. Even if I find the end of pretty jarring, it is overall a work of genius and Charlie Kaufman. While he may have obliterated his, like, dating chances, if it's even remotely autobiographical, he made a fucking great movie. Yeah. And Spike Jonze directed the hell out of it. And Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper acted the fuck out of it. And I'm genuinely sad that The Pianist won adapted screenplay. We should be sad about many aspects of The Pianist, and this is just one of them. Do you have any closing thoughts on this film? Uh, no. No, this is just like, I mean, I don't, it's not Charlie Kaufman's best screenplay from this decade. But I, but the thing is, it's one of those things where, like, I think he is one of the most interesting working writers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a shame that we get, like, a new movie from him every, like, five years or so. Well, <laughs> but genius then, like, six time. <laughs> I know, but it's like, when they come out, you're just like, what is this? No As does great. Madness. If you have not seen Syndicate New York, please see it and just see it as late at night as possible. See it while you are tired as fuck and just cranky for no reason and it will piss you off. It's so weird. Yeah, I mean, see Anona Lisa as well, which is beautifully animated and also only features three actors. Wonderful. Are they the same person in the Uh, end? Tom Tom Noonan is every... So there's three credits. It's David Tudelis as Michael Stone, Jennifer Jason Leigh as Lisa Hesselman, and Tom Noonan as everyone else. So Imagine, imagine you're watching Being John Malkovich where everyone's John Malkovich, except it's the entire movie. I will imagine that. And I will imagine that until next week when Spike Jones's ex-wife and Nicolas Cage's cousin steps into the director chair, Sofia Coppola, because we are covering Lost in Translation. What a wonderful segue, like like a bridge between these movies. Isn't that great? The nepotism of Nicolas Cage, not trading off his family name, and yet here he is, brothers in the fucking movie somehow, and his cousin's directing the next one. Yeah, there you go. Next time, we will do Lost in Translation. Go to entertherealworld.com. Check out everything that is going on there. We're recording months in advance, so I don't know what the fuck to plug. But yeah, do that and go to Mike and Matt on Saturday. I mean, I'll assume Superhero Pantheon will be running. Yes, Superhero Pantheon will run forever until they run out of superhero movies. But, I mean, that is a genuine fear. Like, there will one day not be movies. Ben, can you confirm for me if if there will be movies next week? At Uh, least next week. Next week there will be movies. um, But I can't confirm whether or not there'll still be superhero movies. In fact, I think we've had our last superhero movie until 2020 released now. Well, that's sad. What a great note to end on. Bye, everybody. (laughs)